All right, y'all, here's our last session. This is where we've been building to. Starting last night, talking about God is beautiful, beautiful community. God that we image, so we're formed uh, to image him, and that means individual dignity, value, and worth, but even more than that, reform for image and identity in community. And so, here's the deal. Um, this is the reality the most, if the beauty of God, as I said last night, is most powerfully seen in his communal life, his Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, absolute unity, absolute diversity, then it follows that our beauty is most powerfully expressed as we image him. Unity and diversity in a beautiful community. Theologian Herman Bobby put it this way. This was like, um, to me, just kind of a life-changing uh, uh, quote as I was in seminary reading what he had written about the image of God. And he put it this way. He said, the image of God is much too rich for it to be fully realized in a single human being however richly gifted that human being may be. What it means to be the image of God is too rich, too immense for it to be fully comprised in any one of us singularly. I would say it's true also in any one race or ethnic group. Uh, but, he says, it can only be somewhat unfolded in its depths and riches in a humanity counting billions of members. Since only humanity in its entirety, as one complete organism, summed up under a single head, that single head he's talking about is Jesus Christ, as a prophet proclaiming the truth of God, as priest dedicating itself to God, as ruler controlling the earth and the whole of creation, only it is a fully finished image, the most telling and striking likeness of God. You really want to know and see the full picture of the image of God, you have to have glory in view. You have to have the new heavens and the new earth in view with all of redeemed humanity spread out over all of the earth, exercising uh, all of our gifts and our graces as one complete organism with no sin, glorifying God, loving and serving one another. Since that's the fully finished image, most telling and striking likeness of God. Liz Weiss, uh, artist, put it this way in one of her songs. She just simply sang this verse, right? So how can I contain you when you contain everything? The house of my soul is far too small. Right? This is the reality. We can say that our human creaturely community, when it is mutually glorifying, speaking and acting in such a way as to enhance the reputations of others, to be praised and honored to others, exhibiting a mutual deference, a willingness to serve one another, to submit to one another, we are imaging God's beauty when we see this at work. And so, the point here is the 
identity in community image, the community rather, as image. We are not merely the image of some of the divine attributes, we image God himself, who is inseparable from all of his attributes. And so if God's beauty is seen in his Trinitarian life, we should expect that beauty to be reflected in the humanity that images him. And so while each person has measurable value and dignity because they are God's image, the most significant way we bear that image is in community. Apostle Paul, the first chapter of the letter to the Ephesians, puts it this way, Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 10, that long run-on sentence in the Greek text, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. Paul, what is the mystery of God's will that he has made known to us according to his purpose that he, that he set forth in Jesus Christ as a plan for the fullness of time? Paul in him. Things in heaven and things on earth to unite, to sum up everything in Jesus Christ. That is God's plan for the fullness of time. That's the mystery that has been revealed to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is what's driving Paul's message in the letter to the Ephesians. When he continues in that first chapter praying that they might have the eyes of their hearts enlightened. That they might know the great power that is at work within them. The power, Paul says, that God worked when he raised Christ from the dead. He says, I want you to know the immeasurable power that's at work within you, church. The same power, that is the power of the Holy Spirit, that, that God worked when he raised Jesus Christ from the dead. I want to have the eyes of your hearts enlightened so you would know it. That is in you for what? What is the power in you for? That's what he goes on to say. In chapter 2, right? Uh, uh, by grace we can save through faith. This is not our own doing. It's a gift of God so that nobody can boast. It doesn't matter. Nobody gets to boast. God is doing the work, right? He says, You are uh, living stones. Is it Christ? has broken down in his body the dividing wall of hostility that he may make one new man out of the two. The power that he's praying for, because the evidence that God is going to unite all things in Jesus Christ is the unity of his church. Is the unity in diversity. That's why he says in chapter 4, I, he urges them to, to, to pursue uh, the, the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, because he says there's only one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, 
says, one may think of the spirit much more personally and creatively as an artist whose one subject is the sun, S-O-N, and who is concerned to, 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 to paint countless portraits of that subject on countless human canvases using the paints and brushes provided by countless human cultures and historical situations. It is Jesus, the incarnate Son of the Father, and none other who the Spirit seeks to portray. And each portrait is successful and creative, not because it makes of him what he is not, by forming him in our likeness and conforming him to our preferences and our predilections, but because the Spirit uses ever new cultural approaches and historical situations to bring out more of the infinite variety of saving truth that's in Jesus. And this is what the Spirit does. He uses ever new cultural approaches and historical situations as he does the work of salvation to bring out and show for us more and more of the infinite variety of saving truth that is in Jesus Christ. This is the Spirit's work. You see it come to fruition in texts like Revelation chapter 21, when John is given eyes to see what glory will be. And he says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. He said, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, adorned as a bride for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither God shall cheer up. Shall there be mourning, no crying, no pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And then John says a little later in that chapter when he sees the Holy City, the new uh, Jerusalem, he said, I saw coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most red jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal, had a great high wall with twelve gates, the great gates, twelve angels, and the names of the twelve tribes. John is beside, he's searching for words to describe the glory and the beauty of the bride. He is searching, asking for words to describe how magnificent Jesus' church is in glory. This is where we're headed. This is where the Spirit is taking people of God. And now, I know some of y'all join Christ Central Church and had no idea it was in the PCA. <laughs> I had no idea you were coming Presbyterian. That's all right. I got to be being a Presbyterian too. Lord is good. It wasn't a mistake. They knew what he was doing. But I bring this up for a couple of reasons because I want to show, because all I'm saying, uh, I actually am delighted actually to be in the 
that they believe that the Westminster Confession of Faith, together with its larger and shorter catechism, is a faithful representation of the system of doctrine taught in Scripture. Now, we're very diverse as a but saying no, the Westminster Confession of Faith and larger and shorter catechism are not Scripture, but they faithfully express what is taught in Scripture. And chapter 26 of the Westminster Confession of Faith is on the communion of saints. And it says that all saints were united to Jesus Christ their head by his spirit and by faith have fellowship with him in his graces, sufferings, death, resurrection, and glory, and being united to one another in love, they participate in each other's gifts and graces and are obligated to perform those public and private duties which lead to their mutual good both inwardly and outwardly. In other words, the mutual obligation that believers have towards one another is to, to utilize the gifts and graces that God has given and make for our mutual good. Not just in some material spiritual sense, but they say both inwardly and outwardly, both quote unquote, uh, not materially and materially. It is the duty of professing saints to maintain a holy fellowship and communion in the worship of God and in performing other, such other spiritual services as help them to edify one another. It is their duty also to come to the aid of one another in material things according to their various abilities and necessities. And here it is, as God provides opportunity, this communion is to be extended to all those in every place who call on the name of as God provides opportunity, this communion is to be extended to all those in every place who call on the name of the Lord Jesus. This is 16th century, Westminster, England. Not the most diverse place. But they're looking at the scriptures. And so how is it, how is it, there has never been a time in the history of American Presbyterianism, where Presbyterian ministers have not confessed that this is a faithful representation of the system of doctrine taught in Scripture. So how is it that Presbyterians in America could write defenses and apologetics for slavery and segregation? Could make arguments that some people are less human than others? We are very often blind to the ways in which the, the, the ethics and the drive of the culture informs how we practice our faith. And it's not that we're now somehow immune to it. When I go up to my Brothers and sisters in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, I got this, but not, you know, PCA, not PC, but, you know, we're like kissing cousins. <laughs> My brother Michael Edmondson, a pastor at Grand Rapids, Michigan, New City Fellowship, and he might be the only African American pastor in OPC in the whole denomination. You know, we're going to go game 
But he brought this to my attention. The Orthodox Presbyterian Church, in their book of church order, their directory of public worship, this is what they say in that highlighted passage. In the public worship, God's people draw near to their God, unitedly as his covenant people, the body of Christ. And they say, they say uh, C, paragraph C, the unity and Catholicity of the covenant are to be manifest in public worship. Accordingly, the service is to be conducted in a manner that enables and expects all the members of the covenant community, male and female, old and young, rich and poor, educated and uneducated, healthy and infirm, people from every race and nation to worship together. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord 
If only people loved Freddie Gray just as much as they loved Hawaii. If only people loved John Crawford just as much as they loved their right to bear arms. If only people loved Lecrae's melanin just as much as they loved his music. I'm sorry that you feel guilty for the home you were born into. I'm sorry that you believe that you're blamed for everything. I'm sorry that you maybe know or have a black friend, a black child, and will support Black Lives Matter as long as it does not make you uncomfortable. I'm sorry that you consider us ungrateful. If only all conditions were created.
to share in work and to hope require an increasing consciousness about our own worldviews and a commitment to listen to and walk under the influence of others. And he say, for many in the dominant culture, in which one element of the life world is entitlement, this can be a stressful experience. So it's not like people who are part of the dominant culture in America walk around saying, I'm entitled, I'm entitled, I'm entitled. But it's often the case that people are blind to the entitlement that they have just by being members of the dominant culture. And they say this pursuit of, of, of becoming more conscious about our own worldviews and growing in a commitment to listen to and walk under the influence of others who are particularly part of the non-dominant culture can be a stressful experience. And then they say, for those in the minority, the need for trust remains a challenge, especially if memories are saturated with moods. If you're going to, about, if you're going to be pursuing unity and diversity, these are, are really ways of understanding the challenge. If you're coming from a minority experience where memory is saturated with wounds, becomes more difficult to trust. Look, here's this is man, I don't really know what I'm talking about. This is not mine, this is Carl Ellis. Um, has a helpful view of saying, what is the comprehensive kingdom of God righteousness? You see, you see, for 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 the majority of evangelical culture, it's only in that top left quadrant, personal godliness. The essence of the Christian life is personal godliness, personal piety, obedience to the Lord, walking faithfully with Jesus. And yes, it's true, but there is an underemphasis, he will argue, in a full orb understanding or even personal justice. I do right. I do rightly. I do uh, righteously. I, I seek to do, to live in a way that accords with a follower of Jesus Christ in my personal life. He said, but what we miss very often, particularly evangelicalism, is the social aspect, social godliness, the we of it together. The corporateness of our godly pursuit, the corporateness of the need for understanding justice corporately. Meaning it's not just about what I do individually, but if I have eyes to see, to see and to pursue godliness in social context and structures. So because this is, a, this is the kingdom righteousness. It's all of it. Not just one aspect. Alright, I have three minutes. Three minutes. Oh no, what happened? Alright. Okay, that, that wasn't a blip. There's, for some reason, there was like a black slide there. Dark slide, so. Alright, here's what I want to do. I'm going to talk about some implications of this in, in practical ways and what I found in my own research about. Um, uh, 
diverse churches, and I was asking four questions in my research research. How do people experience belonging in a diverse church? How, do, how does a church that is seeking to be to grow in, in reconciliation, unity, and diversity, how do people actually experience belonging where they say, oh, I belong here, I fit, these are my people, I'm theirs, they're mine. How do people gain awareness of their identity as they experience this belonging? How do people's identity form as they experience this belonging? And what are the benefits for identity formation for people who experience this kind of belonging in a diverse church? And for the first question, it was really interesting. How do people experience belonging in a diverse church? Five ways. This first one, a mission mindset, this applied predominantly to people who are ethnic minorities in the first church. In other words, folk who were, so, okay. This is, this is what other research demonstrates. Uh, Dr. Corey Edwards from the Ohio State University, sociologist, uh, published a book a number of years back, titled The Elusive Dream, The Power of Race in Multiracial Churches. And she makes this case in her, from her research that, that the most successful interracial churches, when success is measured in terms of, of numbers of attendees and longevity, she says, are those that still cater to white cultural norms. In other words, they say they want to be diverse, but they, by default, still, and she says, are the churches where the, 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 the white attendees are the most comfortable, where most of the adjusting is still being asked to do by people who are ethnic minorities. And so here's what I found. People who are ethnic minorities end up taking on a mission mindset. They end up saying, I'm going to facilitate my own kind of belonging. Because I know that it's likely that the folk at my church probably don't have a lot of lived experience with people from my race or ethnicity. So I'm going to take it on myself to bring them into my life and my world. Now, the deal is that has an expiration date. That because minority fatigue is a real thing. Right? If you're carrying that load, and you're carrying that load, right, um, and you don't find this, that the second thing happens, that, that room is being made for you in your embodied self, going back to Sterling Brown's uh, statement, going back to what the OPC Directory of Worship said, right, you don't find that, 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 you're, you're, that, that there's intentionality in room being made for diverse voices, diverse peoples, and their experiences, did it wear out? The third thing I found is crucial, the development of authentic friendships. All right, let me say this, just a point, because I'm not gonna get through all of these. Um, I sent a PDF of this to Meredith, so if any of y'all want slides for the weekend, you'll, uh, you, you'll have it. Um, there's, uh, let me use this example. One of the churches that I did research in, I was interviewing a young, uh, young African-American couple, and they both were members of the music ministry 
careful to say that, right? Because your mother said, oh, you're from India? I know, I'm from Sri Lanka. Uh, and he said, he said, one day, uh, another young man came join the church from Sri Lanka. He said, matter of fact, from my same community in Sri Lanka. And he said, I had no idea how much I missed having that connection to the church. I had no idea how much I longed for there to be someone with whom I didn't have to explain everything. And so it's important. I say this, I say this oftentimes to churches that want to grow in diversity, unity, diversity, and beautiful community. We say we want to hire someone, uh, we want diverse leadership, we want to hire a pastoral intern who's African-American, we want to hire a pastor or some ministry leader who's African-American, we want to diversify our leadership. And I, I often I'll ask the question, okay, uh, how, how prepared are you as a leadership, as a church, to embrace this person in their fully embodied ethnic identity? Where is this person? What? What? Uh, your heart and your intentions are good, but what kind of conversations are you having about the potential trauma that individuals will experience when they're in your midst and they're in my heart? How are you making plans and thinking if there's not a large enough contextual community of, of, of folks who are who share this Be a place where you're thinking about. 
Amen. Amen.